want to welcome everyone to our daily cultural briefing. Today is a special format. We have a fireside chat with the amazing, extraordinary Carrie Morgridge. <laughs> welcome, Carrie. <laughs> so many people know who Carrie Morgridge is. There's probably some people who don't know everything about Carrie Morgridge. By the end of this hour, you're going to know the ins and outs. So let me share with you a little of Carrie's background. I'm going to read a little of your bio here. Um, Carrie Morgridge serves as the Vice President and Chief Disruptor of the Morgridge Family Foundation, MFF. The mission of the foundation is to invest in leaders and organizations that are reimagining solutions to some of today's greatest challenges. Carrie is the award-winning author of Every Gift Matters, How Your Passion Can Change the World. Her second book, The Spirit of the Trail, was released in May 2018. And her third book, Courage Money, which I can't wait, will be published in 2022. Carrie and her husband, John, are proud founders of the Student Support Foundation, a national organization that inspires youth philanthropy, as well as Mind Spark Learning, an organization focused on empowering educators to tackle the most challenging conditions in their schools through design thinking and other strategies. Carrie is an internationally sought-after speaker at education advocacy forums, poverty alleviation conferences, and more. Recent appearances include two TED Talks, go check them out, they're amazing, and serving as a panel member for MIT SOP events. She also serves on the Sparks and Honey Advisory Board, and she is a frequent presenter of the Future of Giving, which was a collaboration between MFF and Sparks and Honey. And we'll be talking about it in just a moment. If you haven't checked it out, this is the Future of Giving report, which we've just updated, right? We're just refreshing right now. That's right. It's going to be hot off the press in the next month or two? The next month, yeah. So, Carrie, welcome today. We're so happy to have you. So, I, I want to... Um, learn as much as we can about you. I mean, you're doing some amazing things and uh, the, the foundation is incredible. If I'm not mistaken, you have uh, provided nearly $130 million out to so many different organizations to try to make a difference in the world. And I can say this because I met Carrie two years ago, um, a little over two years ago, and we've been on this beautiful journey together, um, collaborating. And I think Carrie and I have probably presented on stage I don't know, a hundred times together. I mean, like, like in, 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 tons of, of, of presentations. And what I know is that you're generous in the foundation, but you're incredibly generous with your time. I mean, you're willing to put the time in to really try to make a difference in the world. And your energy is absolutely contagious, right? And I, I, I just been, you know, sometimes I, I watch you and I'm a little bit in awe of just the way you bring everything together. And it's kind of, um, you know, with, with the people, on, whether it's on stage or just in conversation. And, you know, in preparing for this, I mean, part of this is, is getting to know the, the stories behind the story, right? And we had a fireside chat with a gentleman named John Hagel um, probably like a month ago, and he was talking about, I'm just going to read this quote that, that he had. He said, I pursued a path in his life that led to professional success, but obscured what was meaningful to him. And at around the age of 50, he started a path of healing and a reset. And when we double-clicked on what he was talking about, he talked about many of the things that happened in his early childhood that kind of gave him one world view as it related to his life and his career. And I want to start there with you and, and ask you, you know, what were those pivotal moments in your earliest childhood that kind of pre-MFF, pre-John Morgridge, that have, you know, really molded uh, some of the choices you've made with the organization? So, Terry, it's an honor to be at Sparks and Honey and to be in the new facility and to be, to be here with you. And in just a short amount of time, we've gone um, from doing business together to truly being friends who care about each other. And I love you and Brian deeply. Oh, so I, I just want to say that. And that's kind of what happens at MFF. So to start on the basis of love, mm -hmm. I grew up in a super loving family in um, the the central coast of California. Okay. And at nine, my parents said they couldn't live together anymore. And I'd never seen my parents fight mm. before, which I think was a good and a bad, right? And then when they divorced, I bounced from school to school to school because mom moved out and then dad moved away. And 
I just went back and forth and up and down and all around. So I clearly understand now when children, especially in the foster care system, mm -hmm. I wasn't a foster care child, but bouncing from school to school to school, it's really, really difficult. Mm. Then at 18, my mom had married um, a man who I clearly didn't get along with. Mm -hmm. And so I moved out my senior year of high school. I was working two jobs, I was paying rent, and if I didn't work those two jobs, I didn't eat. Mm. So food insecurity has become really, really important to me at the foundation, just because that's where I wa was at one point in my life. Yeah. Graduated high school by one point. Wow. I hated political science. Mm. I'm still not good at the politician thing or politics thing. I graduated by one point, and I will share a quick story is, um, to graduate that class by one point, um, I was failing that class. And mm -hmm. Mr. Burns, my teacher, came in and said, why aren't you turning in your homework? Mm -hmm. And I said, Mr. Burns, the homework requires us to buy a newspaper and I don't have 25 cents. Mm -hmm. And I, I now understand the teacher side when a child might say that to them. So Mr. Burns set up a tutor for me and it was at the pizza parlor. So <laughs> A, I got fed. But B, it was amazing how he always showed up on Tuesday night. And I thought he was really checking on me, but he was loving mm. and being a kind, good teacher. So that has also stuck with me all of these years. Mm -hmm. And then again, I passed by one point and immediately moved up to the Bay Area. So I was already used to working two jobs. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a lot of energy and I have a lot of nervous energy. So <laughs> I worked eight to five in a real estate office. And then I worked at a bar called Harry Denton's in San Francisco. Still from, around? It's still around okay. from 10 to two or 10 to four. Wow. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. Mm -hmm. So Friday, I was a disaster at work. <laughs> I would take my pillow and sleep <laughs> in the office. Um, and then a guy walked in the bar and that would be my husband, John Morgridge. Oh, wow. So I had these unbelievable relationships along my life. I had a very loving family. Um, oh, and I should also say, I started water skiing at the age of five. Wow. So sports was in my DNA. When we, I grew up in Santa Barbara. So um, we would, the cheapest place you can go um, for free is go to the beach. Mm. So I used to go and body surf all weekend long at the beach. My parents couldn't drag me out of the ocean. I was always active, super busy, and just Love an it. active little child that grew up into an active little adult. <laughs> so two things. We have to go water skiing together. I love to water ski. Um, second is, I think, you know, everyone needs a Mr. Burns, right? I mean, like, we go through life where, and there are those moments where certain groups are struggling, and someone mentors us, puts us on their shoulders, and, and I think a lot of the work that you do today is, you know, tapping into that. How do we cultivate those kind of relationships that help people on, on those journeys, especially as it relates to education? And I think you do so much work in education, and yet you truly felt the struggle, you know, like what it's like to almost fail, to not, almost not, not make it. So you um, were fast-forwarding, I think, to 24 is that when you met yep. John? When I turned 24, a guy walked in the bar, uh -huh. and um, it was my now husband, John Morgridge, of 30 and a half years. Wow. Um, 30 yeah. and a half years. Congratulations. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. So Beautiful. for our 30th wedding anniversary, we skied. Uh, we wanted 30 days with 30 friends, and we ended up skiing about 600,000 vertical. Wow. So that little girl who grew up water skiing learned how to snow ski. Uh -huh. Very nice. <laughs> well, it's a little different. but. <laughs> so I think what most people want to understand is um, when I met John, it was truly love at first sight. So we met October 16th. And our first big party was Halloween, so it's now my favorite holiday. Mm -hmm. We got really dressed up. It was super fun. And we married February 7th. So things were moving and shaking. Yeah. I had written a business plan. I was ready to open a chain of tanning salons. Mm -hmm. And my husband was kind of looking for his next gig. Mm -hmm. And so he jumped into the tanning salon business with me. Oh, and we ended up having the largest chain of tanning salons in Northern California. Oh, wow. Um, what's more important, though, is that John's dad, John Morgridge, mm -hmm. 
took a company called Cisco Systems Public. Mm -hmm. And that was happening as I was meeting my husband. So I thought Cisco was a food company. It's actually a tech <laughs> Many company. Many people, yeah. <laughs> so, with a Y or an I, right? Uh, Cisco thing? Systems. Yeah. Well, it's now just Cisco, C-I-S-C-O, mm -hmm. but the food company is the other way. Yeah. Um, and really fell in love with John's parents, John and Tasha. They, Tasha was a special ed teacher. My father-in-law is probably known in Silicon Valley as one of the most philanthropic um, movers of that, of that era. I think my father-in-law did a great job of putting philanthropy at the forefront of corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And um, as, as John and I started to grow our family, John and Tasha were accumulating a huge amount of wealth, mm -hmm. and they decided to give most of it away. Mm -hmm. And they are the most humble, the most kind, the most loving, affectionate couple I know. And they welcome me into the family with big open arms. Yeah, so that really helps when your in-laws like you and you like your in-laws. Because yeah. it's 30 years later and we still vacation together. I cannot wait to get to their house, to be with them, to see them, to hear them laugh, to hear them tell <laughs> stories. It's beautiful. And John is just... He's a product of his family, too. He also grew up incredibly athletic. Mm -hmm. So my first two questions on our first date was, can you water ski and can you snow ski? <laughs> I guess I had low criteria back yes. then. But um, we both found that we wanted to raise our kids also in an active lifestyle. So when we could afford to, thanks to Cisco's stock, mm -hmm. we actually ended up moving to Colorado and out of California and never went back. Mm. Colorado has provided, had provided us just such a great family environment. Our love for the outdoors has been since childhood for both John and I and our, both of our families, and it still exists today. And it's fun to see now that I'm a grandma, um, our daughter going to every public park with her son and um, going on backpacking trips and just doing all that. So it does pass on through the generations, your love for the great outdoors. And the headquarters of MFF is in Colorado, right? Yes. You're, you're in Denver. We're right in Denver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 25 years. Wow. And how much time do you spend there now? Because I know you don't spend all your time in sure. Colorado. I don't. The MFF headquarters is located there. And part of the reason we never wanted to move it, we had had... Um, uh, such a beautiful relationship with the community yeah. of the state. I know you do <laughs> with so the much state. With Colorado. It, it was a, a perfect place for us to land. So, John and I split our time between Florida and Montana now. But um, again, two totally active lifestyles. Mm -hmm. um, but the headquarters, and, it, and it's the perfect fit in, yeah. in our relationship. So, now that we have staff, so we didn't have staff for many, many years at mm -hmm. the foundation. But now that we have staff, half of them don't live in Denver yeah. because of technology mm -hmm. and half of them are there. And then when we host big events, sometimes it's all hands on deck. Yeah. So Carrie, um, you met John at 24. You've been together for 30 plus years. Um, beautiful mm -hmm. uh, love story, you know, and, and I always find it fascinating people who are life partners and also do business together and you all are working in the foundation uh, together. And you mentioned to me that, um, you know, you have this, you had this rough go in early life with education. And then later in life, I think at maybe mid thirties, um, you went back to school. And so talk about that experience of going to school later in life, uh, completing your university degree and how that shaped the way you think about education and philanthropy and education. So at one point, John and I um, had lived in Florida with our children part-time and then Colorado. And we tried to flip-flop it and see what that would look mm -hmm. like. So I did my first Ironman in Florida. I did the full in oh. Panama City. Uh, for those of you curious, 13 hours, 20 minutes. Wow. The next year, my husband went on to beat me. He did a 12-20. <laughs> wow. Shame on him. Get a little competition but, in Yeah, there. we did. That's but nice. we had young children. And so when you train for Ironman, you have to, somebody has to be the responsible adult and cook the <laughs> meals for the kids and pick them up from school while the other one's training. Um, so but, that's why he did a little better. <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> but um, uh, when I finished Ironman, it's an audacious goal, mm. and it took me a full year of training. I didn't know what was next, and my mother-in-law 
sent a note and said, just a quick little note, have you ever considered college? Hmm. And I was like, I, yes, but, but when? When do you go to college? So at 36 years old, hmm. John and I had been, we started another company. We started flipping houses. Mm-hmm. We were quite successful with that in Colorado, so we brought it to Florida. And I decided to go to interior design school. And so John put me through college. So true to my core, remember, I used to work two jobs. So I would stack tennis back to back. I'd drive from Orlando to Tampa. I'd go to school and stack those classes. I'd do um, Monday afternoon, Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, and be home in time to feed my children on Tuesday evening. So I get... I wasn't a single mom. Mm -hmm. I had a beautiful husband taking care of the kids. Mm -hmm. But I get that sacrifice that you have to make to move your career along. And I graduated. So I graduated high school by one point. Graduated at the top of my class, summa cum laude, from design school. Oh, wow. Now, my kids will tease me today because my kids are quite brilliant and have a great sense of humor. They'll say I graduated from crayon school. (laughs) (laughs) So I did get to work a lot with crayons, but there's a lot more to design school and great history. If I could do it one more time, I would go back and be an art uh, historian. I just I fell in love with art and we were exposed to all kinds of reasons how art um, form follows function, function follows form sometimes. Mm-hmm. It, it was just such a great experience. But I remember coming home and sitting at the dinner table, because we always have dinner with our children at the t- dining table, and just talking about my professors and what I'm learning and about the history and how the second time around I learned so much more mm-hmm. because I wanted to learn. I remember kind of being in the K-12 sector. I wasn't quite there yet. I wanted to get on with life. I wanted to be an adult. Yeah, he's going to finish it and be, be done. I wanted to finish yeah. it and be done. So um, we were having a conversation earlier where I learned more from the David McCullough books, mm-hmm. you know, 1776 and the pioneers about our great history than I did probably sitting in a history class not really paying attention. Yeah. Has, has that experience of going back later in life and, and finding your, your way in education, has it impacted the way you support other educational um, organizations? And uh, Absolutely, because I was an entrepreneur at heart, yeah. yet in that era, I don't think we were talking about entrepreneurs in the way we might now. Mm-hmm. And what one of the things we really push for at MindSpark Learning is how do we get businesses and entrepreneurs to do startups in, in a high school setting? Yeah. What does that look like? And so MindSpark Learning is actually doing Brought that. Brought those two things together. Yeah, yeah. I didn't fit the mold. And when I look at so many kids who may have dropped off, so just so you know, as a stat, it's about 50% of all high school kids won't graduate. Uh-huh. They'll either drop out in ninth grade, 10th grade, or they'll get to senior year and find out that they couldn't pass a certain test because their knowledge wasn't there. I was that entrepreneur. I was that young girl mm-hmm. that passed by one point, and I got, you had I got Mr. lucky. Burns. I had Mr. Burns. Yeah. So how do we promote that to say it's not a one-size-fits-all in K-12? Mm-hmm. And how do we allow educators that freedom and that flexibility mm-hmm. to, to help recreate and reimagine what K-12 really should be? And so that's a great question is, what is K-12? Mm-hmm. Who are we serving? And are we doing a good job? And if not, when are we going to pivot? Yeah, that's the chief disruptor there. How do we... <laughs> so so we, we were talking the other day, and I was telling you about um, my experience in Peace Corps. You know, I, I, went to, I was in Kazakhstan for 27 months, and it was an amazing experience. And many people asked me the question of, what did you learn there? What was, what was the takeaway? And I lived with this incredible family, and I said to you that I had the great honor of, after 15 years, them staying with me this weekend, the first time I saw the family, and such a beautiful, beautiful moment. But the one thing I, I realized is that when you go to a place like that, you may not speak the language, you may come from different religion, religious backgrounds, political systems. I mean, Kazakhstan is a breakaway country from the USSR. I mean, everything about it is wired different than probably the, the the U.S., 
but we smiled about the same things. We laughed about the same things. We told interesting stories about ourselves, you know, and, and we had these amazing connections. And I think that that's part of the, the journey of, you know, if we can let go of some of the noise that's around us in society and tap into those human connections, then we can, you know, create some beautiful bonds. And you talked to me the other day about this journey, um, probably many journeys that you've gone on with John, but one in particular uh, stuck with me was that you all did this 46-day bike ride from Canada through Mexico. Can you tell us a little bit about that and your journey on making those human connections? Sure. Um, So I had had back surgery after doing a lot of Ironman, and I had just done too much running. And so you, after back surgery, you can't work out literally for about six months, which is oh, well. working out as one of my superpowers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it creates my optimism. So um, I felt that I was getting quite heavy, and I asked my husband if I could go to fat camp. And he said, hold, please. So his mom... He's like, he's like, no, no, can you go? I'll take you. We're going to go on a 46-day. <laughs> That's exactly what he came back with. <laughs> with me, what your you, instructor. <laughs> yes. What do you think about biking across the country? Oh. So his parents, when his dad um, uh, repotted from Cisco because he went from CEO to being chairman, mm-hmm. um, he biked across the country, and they ended up doing it three times on road bikes. Oh, wow starting at their house in the Bay Area and ending um, up in New Hampshire. So John had always wanted to bike across the country, but we had also kind of graduated more over to uh, mountain biking versus Mm -hmm. road biking. We just didn't feel super safe Mm -hmm. on the road as much anymore. And um, so now we run away from grizzlies. (laughs) (laughs) So he came back with me with a proposal, and the hardest part about the proposal of the trip was how do I take 60 days off from a job that I absolutely love? Hmm. I had never unplugged for even a week, mm-hmm. right? And think about when was the last time you actually left your phone aside and didn't look at it? Yeah. Imagine being asked to do that for 60 days. A true digital detox. A true. With a fat camp on top of it. Yes. So I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to get back in shape. And my doctor said I could do mountain biking because it's linear. Mm-hmm. It's not pounding on my body. Okay. So husband John, he is an amazing researcher. He, while I worked mm-hmm. at the foundation, and I report to him, he is my boss. Mm-hmm. But while I worked, um, John did all the research, ordered all of, we got special bikes, um, you know, they had pant, he had to, we had to decide panniers or not panniers. We had to decide supported, not supported. We went unsupported because mm-hmm. we like to be together. And I was really concerned about the first few days. What was I um, going to think about? Mm-hmm. And it almost happened. It took about 10 days to get into the spirit of the trail, which is why I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. I was blogging every day afterwards about it. And um, it truly turned in from a mountain biking, get in shape trip to a love story. Hmm. Um, Being unplugged for that long with a man that you love so much, I started to notice the nice things that John did for me. Hmm. Um, He pumped up my tires every morning. He helped me set the campsite. We had our own individual chores. He mapped out where we were going to go from day to day. We would talk about it at night on how far we were going to go the next day. He did all these nice things for me. What I realized is in the 25 years of marriage, he had been doing it the whole time (laughs) for me. But we get so involved with the noise Mm -hmm. that we forget to look at just a a person in our lives that are doing incredibly kind things for us on a day-to-day basis. I mean... Not only did he put me through college, but he took care of the kids. Mm -hmm. These are really huge things. So I will share with you, it was really hard. I was really sore. (laughs) You can't say that in a book for 46 days. (laughs) So I tried to find the joy of every day. and And we would take time out. I remember John one day, he went skinny dipping in Montana. And all of a sudden, we hear a couple talking. 
Well, they are volunteers picking up trash on the trail. <laughs> and John's like in the water, like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> to, um, you know, I, I didn't have a breakdown till the end. We were at day 45, and we didn't know where we were going to stay. We didn't know where we were going to get our water from. We didn't think we had enough food to get through the last. And this goes back to my childhood of all these insecurities and just trying to stay positive. And so we made it to the, I don't know, there's this uh, Indian trading company on Highway 10 near Hachita. We made it there, got some food, and then I asked the counter lady, um, is there a place for us to stay near the border? We were, we were truly scared. We, did not, we do not um, have a gun. Mm-hmm. We had bear spray, but we don't have a gun. Mm-hmm. Not in our household, not anywhere. So John and I were nervous about staying that close to the border. Mm-hmm. And they, again, going back to human kindness, the, not only were, were the women at this trading post super awesome, they handed me Jim, the director's number, and I was able to call Jim, and he said, yeah, I'll open up the community center for you. So a sigh of relief came off for me, and I look over, and John is crying. He had been so worried about my safety for the whole trip, and getting us safely to Mexico was his biggest worry. Hmm. And those kind women immediately helped us. And then on the last day, we're biking along, and I started thinking about the whole trip. And we had looked back that night about all the photos, and it almost seemed surreal like we didn't do it, but we did it. Yeah. And I just pulled over because I knew we were going to make it. We had 20 miles to go out of 2,790 miles or something like that. And I was just crying. And I vowed that I wasn't going to cry on this trip. And I started crying because my love for John was so strong. Mm. And then because I stopped, he stopped, and he was crying. Mm. And it was just how connected and how in love. And, again, when I told people I was going to bike across the country for my 25th wedding anniversary, they thought I was nuts. You're all going to be at each other's throats. And yet... If I could say, do something with your spouse that would be so significant, wow. is to take a bike ride. And if you're not going to be, if you're not going to do 46 days, the company we use is called Adventure Cycling. Mm-hmm. Go to Adventure Cycling and book yourself a weekend. Yeah. Do a, do a three-day trip. Right now in Colorado, the leaves are about to turn. In Maine, the leaves are turning. New Hampshire, the whole East Coast. Mm-hmm. Treat Perfect yourself. Time. Perfect time. And digital detox. I mean, just, I mean, the fact that you took... 60 days, put everything behind you, and then you could break the habits of probably tuning out the things that probably you should be grateful for and tuning in to to those things. And I mean, you rekindled, you know, the love and created that connection again. Beautiful, beautiful story. Uh, Carrie, you, um, in in everything you do, in the collaborations that we've had, what you do with MFF, there's this incredible uh, resilience and grit that you that you bring, and I think part of it, it comes from those your your childhood and, and digging deep and and translating that into your into your efforts. Um, and also you've funneled that into an Ironman. And if I'm not mistaken, you've done 11 of them. I mean, 11 Ironman. That, that's incredible. Can you talk a bit about what has pushed you to do an Ironman the first time? What's kept you at it, and where you find this grit and resilience that is you know, at the core of your personality? When we were in Aspen, we lived in Aspen, Colorado for a good decade. And I met a gentleman there who was, I was biking my child to the bus stop and he was biking his child to the bus stop. His name is Elliot Robinson. He's now since passed. And he did one of the first Ironman Mm. and he had done seven. So at one particular point in time, he said, would you come to Kona and cheer me on for the world championships? And John and I are always a yes. Yes, yes, we'd love to go to Hawaii. Yes, we'd love to cheer you on. By the way, it's the hardest thing ever on the planet is to cheer on another athlete at Ironman because it's like the full Ironman can be up to 16 hours long. (laughs) So that's 16 hours of cheerleading starting at 4 (laughs) a.m. But we went and we had the greatest day. And I remember saying, I could beat that person. Oh, I could beat that person. Oh, heck yeah, I could beat that person. 
So I told Elliot, I'm doing an Ironman. And one year later, to his Kona, I did my first full Ironman. And then my husband did an Ironman the year later, because, of course, he had to beat me. Yeah, yeah. And then my father did the same Ironman in the third year. So um, it, it just w was a beautiful um, growth experience for us. Um, there is a commitment and also um, you have to give things up to do an Ironman. And I really have a lot of respect for people who are full-time. We'll see a lot of doctors and attorneys and um, all kinds of professionals mm -hmm. doing Ironman, Navy SEALs. I mean, we've seen it all. And what they have to endure to get up at 3 or 4 a.m. to get that time in. Because mm -hmm. you can't buy Ironman. Yeah. You have to train for it. Mm -hmm. And it's really changed my life in so many ways on the health side. Mm -hmm. I started eating healthier. I remember at one point I was eating a cheeseburger after cheeseburger after cheeseburger because I was working out hard, right? Mm -hmm. So I was, quote, hungry. And I was also gaining a pound a year. So I was up 20 pounds. Mm -hmm. Um, called my dad and he's like, you know, I hate to tell you, but you're gonna have to stop eating meat. Mm. And so John and I, as a couple, again, we totally switched mm. and we went from that to not eating meat ever again. Oh well. And that was over I a decade ago. I you vegetarian. Yeah. So we went strict vegan for a mm -hmm. few years, and now we're pescatarian. We added okay. fish back into our diet. Um, the resiliency. I think comes with a hard workout and then pretending that you didn't have a hard workout and going into your next meeting, like, okay, I'm ready to go. Yeah. How many, I don't know how many times you've seen me on zoom with my baseball cap. Cause I've just finished a really yeah. good train. I, I have so many meetings with you and you come in and you've come off the slope or you've come from, I mean, you're, you're working out is, is your outlet. I mean, you're, you're able to probably let stress out and, and, yeah. but it gets you centered so that you can be as resilient in what you do. It's, it's super impressive. I want to, I want to ask a different sure. question go, going into a, a, another topic. Um, clearly you are in a very fortunate situation. I mean, thanks to your mother-in-law and your father-in-law, they did incredibly well. And with that wealth has allowed you to do what you do at MFF. It also allows you um, an incredible lifestyle, um, so forth and so on. Um, but something that's interesting in culture is that many people, we want to be super successful. We, we, we look for trying to accomplish things. And many times when you accomplish things, it comes along with uh, accumulating wealth. Um, but then on the flip side, uh, when people have accumulated wealth, they are bucketed into this group of one, percent, one percenters or the, 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 the billionaire class or whatever that is. And it's, and it's fairly vilified. I mean, it's, it's, it's somewhat of a, of a negative in, in society. And it, it's, it's been very in interesting to watch because of that tension of people want it, but once you have it, you're no longer a good person or there, there's, there's the baggage that goes along with that. And so I wanted to ask you today, I mean, how have you um, uh, really maneuvered through that? And, you know, when you read those kind of things in the media or just you li live it every day, because it's not often that we get to hear directly from the other side um, what it feels like. And I think one of the things I just want to say is at Sparks Honey, we pride ourselves on understanding both sides of everything. You know, there's, we don't want to take, um, we want to understand and, and having you here today, you can kind of illuminate that, that side. Sure. So again, rich, uh, rags to riches yeah. would definitely be my story. Um, there is, in the mortgage family, there is a beautiful humility that comes with the amount of wealth that they have amassed. I think it does society no good to bash the rich. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, you can hear it straight from me, it's hurtful. Mm. Um, I work nonstop. You do. 24-7. Um, when I'm not working out, but I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing next. Um, I, I think it does no good to bash people who have amassed wealth. I think with social media, it's allowed people to be mean behind the screen. Mm. And so they don't think that they're hurting our feelings. Well, guess what? It hurts. And it's not nice. And you need to stop. Mm. Um People want to just society, yet it's okay to bash certain people. Yeah. That's just wrong. Yeah. And one of the things that I think people don't realize is how many sacrifices my father-in-law made along his life 
grit, resilience, determination to become, you know, the CEO of Cisco Systems. Yeah, I'm sure he's putting Cisco. in incredible hours building on, on his career. Exactly. I mean, he's incredibly accomplished. So sometimes the media only wants to post the the outcome well, we look at point of that time. hard work. Yeah, it's like the yes. point in time is now that that he is a billionaire, and, and that's what they focus on as opposed to the journey to get there. But, I'm, I'm you know, he, he put in tremendous amount of effort. To, yes, and still does to this day. He's one of the hardest working philanthropists we know. No. So, and both him and my mother-in-law. Yeah. So, again, it, it's really awesome being wealthy. <laughs> um, I don't have to worry about when I go to the grocery store what that total dollar amount is going to be. John and I have never once had to fight about finances. Mm -hmm. There are things that I remember as a child um, having to really focus on and all of that has been let go mm -hmm. because of where we're at and we've tried to give that to our children and then you know we're setting up hopefully some funds for our our grandchildren to go to college mm -hmm. we still believe that education is the greatest equalizer mm -hmm. and so that's why at mortgage family foundation my husband has said it over and over again we're really an education foundation and if you look at how we, every, if, you put, if you were to put education and community at the center of everything we do, mm -hmm. food and security, health and wellness, the arts, all of it actually ties back in to education. So we're huge proponents of that. We've given away a ton of money, and yet I would say we're just getting started. We're making some strides. Beautiful. Um, of having some small successes. And one of the things I like to share with people is... Education is a huge pie. Take your slice and be the best. In New York City, you have Success Academy. Mm -hmm. I can tell you from the data, I can tell you from the reports, I am their biggest fan. Um, she has taken a broken public education system mm -hmm. and she's been able to turn it around into the most successful schools in New York State. Mm. And be the best you can be. Hmm. So where we're the best we can be in education and why you may not have heard of us is MindSpark Learning is behind the scenes. We train teachers. Mm -hmm. And we train teachers for them to have whole school transformation and to turn things yeah. around. That's what I was thinking when you, when you told the story about Mr. Burns. I mean, the kind of programs you put in place are to create a Mr. Burns, right? right. And that's, that's, you know, sometimes those... Um, human connections that we have early in our life shape the kind of programs that we may end up implementing. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I think back to, if we want to compare early to now, MindSpark Learning is a spinoff from Workridge Family Foundation. Not a lot of foundations create and invent their own nonprofit and then spin hmm. it off and, and give it to an awesome woman who can run it for the rest of her life. And yeah. I get to move on to something else and starting up something else. Yeah. So. Yeah, that allows it to live on and you're, you're, you're scaling. And I, I love that the programs that you put together set someone up, put the, the, the infrastructure around them, and then it, then it lasts over time. So, Carrie, we, uh, let's talk a bit about future giving. Sure. So we went on a journey um, about two years ago. And I remember when you walked in to, to Sparks and Honey, and we do this cultural briefing every day, and you're like, are you working currently with philanthropy? And we, we, we said, no, we, were, we told you who we were working with. And you're like, well, you're going to be, because we need to take this model and apply it to looking at where the future is going. And it's been an incredible journey. We produced the, 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 this report here. Um, you can download it. Uh, we produced it about a little over a year ago, Kind of, it kind of launched mid, right in the beginning of the pandemic, mid-pandemic. And um, we've presented it hundreds of times to thousands of people, which is exactly what we wanted to accomplish, getting it out to the world. You've presented it in, in a TED Talk, which is incredible. Um, can you talk a little bit about the uh, importance of having this future-forward voice out in the marketplace coming from MFF? So Mortgage Family Foundation, again, I would call us Mortgage Light. You know, we're not John and Tasha, yet we still have an incredibly, incredibly healthy budget to give away. So I was always looking at how can we maximize our ROI, our return on investment. 
Because when we look at making grants at Mortgage Family Foundation, we're looking for those leaders and those disruptors of how could we change systems and do things new. When I had the opportunity and was introduced to you um, through Brian, it was like a light bulb clicked. And then when I saw your wall of who you're working with, I was like, oh, Terry, you don't have philanthropy here. And what would that look like? So I'm so glad I persuaded you <laughs> to get into the You're giving business. <laughs> but you got into the giving business based on data and research. You have taught me so much. Um, you've taught me how to be transparent. So we did um, a Discovery and Disruption report, which just came out. It's on our website. It's free. But we wanted to show, and I hope, lead other nonprofits or um private family foundations like ourselves to show your data, show where you're investing, spark other ideas for other philanthropists to possibly get involved or collaborate. Um, you showed me how important uh, Gen Z is. And we had been working with that at um, Student Support Foundation. And we had been, I, we started a national philanthropic club. We've uh, trained thousands of lives, and collectively, they've given away over $700,000. Oh. That is a really big deal. Mm. They've given it away in 25s and 50s, but that have been life-changing, and it's empowered the students to realize that they could have an impact on their own community without a lot of money. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned as a philanthropist is that some of my happiest, most awesome gifts in here aren't always that big, huge check. It's those little $25, those $50, where I feel like I'm making a difference, whether it's disaster relief or helping women in Afghanistan. You know, every gift does matter. Or your organization, Impact One. Impact 100. Yeah. It's a giving circle where 100 women give $1,000 and they make a $100,000 transformational gift. This year, we're going to give away $90 million collectively. Wow. That is a big, big amount, yet we're kind of unheard of, right? Mm -hmm. Just like the Mortgage Family Foundation, we're kind of unheard of. It's okay if we're anonymous. Mm -hmm. We don't have to have our name out there. Sometimes it's helpful to have our name out there, and sometimes it's great to be the anonymous donor. The most important part to us is that lives transform and that systems change. Yeah. So we're always looking for that at Mortgage Family Foundation. Um, the Future of Giving report also, one of the things that I think is really heavy on my heart right now, and you touched on it, is uh, our lack of faith in diminishing societal trust. Mm -hmm. And so in a diminishing society, we all need a place to belong. So where is that going to be? Yeah. And for me, I have a lot of hope because Gen Z, they want to change the world, and we need to create a safe place for everyone to belong. So one of the great things that's happened with this report is... Um, we have started doing more and more and more collaborative giving. So we're partnering with the DRK Foundation. We're partnering. I've always been a huge United Way donor. I've given United Way a little over $25 million. Amazing. And I do have to give a shout-out to Mackenzie Scott. She just gave away $3.4 billion, and our Denver United Way received $50 million. Wow. From her. From her. Mm -hmm. No strings attached. And what's been so great is Christine Bonero, the CEO there, is really thoughtfully taking her time about where, where is it going to have the most impact, who is it going to transform the most, and what can we do mm -hmm. differently. So that Mackenzie Scott money for so many organizations is really going to disrupt and transform. So I wish she would come here and use your data system and really work on the data of where did my money go, who did the best with it, and then are there other programs in the future that we should be replicating and talking about. So the most important thing is a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, is looking back at the data and saying this really worked mm -hmm. and this really didn't. And one of the things we don't do well in philanthropy is talk about what didn't work. Mm -hmm. We only talk about what did work. And the way we learn is from successes and failures. So that's why I'm writing my third book, The Courage Money, because yeah. I really think it's taking the courage, not our government money, that's sustainable money, 
but how do we use our courage money to try something, fail, pivot, try it again? So we're working on right now at Morgan Family Foundation, we're working on a food utility. Mm -hmm. So you have a for-profit utility for, for water. We have a for-profit utility for power. Why can't we have a for-profit utility for food so that everybody would have access to healthy and healthier foods? Yeah. So we're working on it. And believe it or not, it's a data company. Hmm. More than a food company, it's a data play. So it will be really interesting to see what happens. Our pilot starts in January. Wow. We'd love to come back a year from we'll now. We'll have to have you back to talk about that pilot and the uh, Encourage money. Right? But it all came from the Future of Giving report. We have completely pivoted and shifted at Mortgage Family Foundation, not on our values and our ideals, but how we do business and who we do business with. Wow. And the new report, um, you know, looking at everything that shifted post-pandemic and kind of where we are today, uh, we've updated and we've done an additional analysis on uh, Generation Z. And so that body of work will be uh, open and available to people in the next month or so. Yeah. What I love about your organization, too, it was really important that we bought the IP so that we could source it for everybody. Um, so the Future of Giving Report is an open source document that anybody and everybody has access to. You'll always find that at Mortgage, that everything we do, we want you to learn about. And yeah. we want to share our data with you, just the way we want to share this incredible, thoughtful report that is based on data first. Yeah part of the educational mission. I mean, getting it out. To, and, I, and, I, and you did such a good job with the, the first launch. I mean, from, from TED uh, to just on stage to, I mean, I don't know. I think some days you were presenting the body of work five or six times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. So I was saying the resilience and you were trying to get people to open their minds and eyes to new opportunities, new possibilities that, that may not have been on the radar. And they were so appreciative. I mean, that, that's the beautiful thing. I mean, people are so, so open and were willing to receive and you gave it to them for free. I mean, it's like, here it is for you to take and, and let me help you try to even figure out how to apply it. it was, so we've had thousands of uh, NGOs, non-government organizations, actually be able to take the report back to their board okay. and show their boards, this is what the data says. And the number one question we get is, how do we grow and scale, and can you help us with fundraising? Mm -hmm. Both are in the report. Mm -hmm. If you read through the report and really understand it, so we now do a quarterly talk you can find us on the website. I think we have a calendar. I'm looking over at Meredith. I'm pretty sure that it's on the calendar. But once a quarter, we're talking with any United Way that wants to invite one of their 1,500 NGOs to the table so that we could talk to them directly. Sometimes it's, it's easy to read the report and kind of glance at it and say, but how does that impact me? Think about the actual action. Yes. And with COVID... It has changed our lives in such a huge way. And honestly, I don't know if we're going back to the old ways. It, we always say yes and at the foundation. There will be a few foundations that will definitely go back to their old ways. But if you don't have technology in your back pocket, if you're not talking to your um, Gen Zers, the way they want to absorb their media, what we've learned from you is Gen Z, there's 68 million of them. They want to change the world. They care about their finances, and they, you have eight seconds to talk mm -hmm. to them on TikTok, or you have lost them completely. So what is your eight-second TikTok fundraising goal that, that gets our, our next group together? And in social media now, you have to not only have social media experts, I think we have three on staff, but you, you have to be able to talk to people. The, you have to meet them where they're yeah. at, Without right? Without Funding and, and, and the way from, from the raising money and, and all of that. I mean, it, it's it's all shifted. And I think, uh, you know, putting Gen Z as as a focal point, they, they may not be donating at the same level as other generations, but they will. But their voice is so strong. I mean, that that's the one thing we've really looked at. So, uh, last question. Let me let me ask you this. You've done so many amazing things in your life. Um, you're doing amazing things to help so many people. What, what's on your bucket list? 
Oh, bucket list. Well, for us, I do, I have to let people know how blessed I am. I thank God every day. And, you know, I had to pray every day just to get through the spirit of the trail. Um, a bucket list is I have had the pleasure being married to John Morgridge and traveling the world with him. Mm-hmm. Never been to Alaska. Oh, surprised. So how can I not go? How can I not not go to Alaska? So I think it's the simple things is I'm really excited. And whether we take our RV up there. 46 days across Alaska. <laughs> the, the great. I don't know. It's sounding family. pretty good to and me. And the one thing I know that's not on your bucket list is being a grandmother because yep. you recently became a grandmother. Yep. And that's a beautiful, that's another beautiful gift, right? It, oh, being a grandma. It is the, the when greatest. I see, when I hear you say grandma and I, I was like, <sighs> Carrie Mortgage is a grandmother. I am Grandma Carrie, yeah. and I've always been Grandma Carrie, and I just, John and I are loving being Grandma and Grandpa. So Elio, our grandbaby, he can say Gamma, 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 <laughs> and I don't want that stigmatism. I really want to be Grandma. So we're going to work on that for a while. Maybe <laughs> that's a bucket. Is, is the, <laughs> we're going to work on Grandma for a while. Um, I think also for the foundation, I am super excited to launch our newest um, staff members are going to be future CEOs of social impact companies. Love it. And I just, I, I can't wait to be on that journey with them. Yeah. So it's not really a bucket list item. It's where, where is, where is my path headed? Like getting them there and, and giving them the yep. support. And empowering our youth is um, super important to me because I remember when I came into money, I married John at 24. So by the time I was 30, we were pretty wealthy. And I remember people not taking me seriously at all. Mm. And um, and it, again, it goes back to being a little hurtful. Mm-hmm. And then also being Teflon. Yeah. Like, I don't care what they think about me. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go do what I do. I'm going to do my thing. You're going to disrupt. Yes. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to spend time with you. And I, I really liked that we had this chance to talk. You know, it's easy to talk about MFF and some of the programs, but, you know, learn a little bit more about you and your life. And it, it's wonderful. So so thank you for sharing because not everyone wants to come on camera and be be vulnerable and, and tell those stories. Um, so, so we will have you back again. Uh, your book is launching next year. Yes. Uh, the report is launching next month. So we, it, it, all, both of them are out there for the world. Um, for all of our viewers, we thank you for spending this hour with us. And we hope that you will join us all week. We have uh, an amazing week uh, lined up. And until tomorrow, consider yourself briefed. Mm-hmm.